2: Welcome to the Soul of Enterprise, business in the knowledge economy, sponsored by SAGE, energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people and the power of technology. I'm Ed Kless with my friend and co-host Ron Baker. And on today's show, Ron, I can't believe it. We have both Rabbi Daniel Lappin and Father Robert Sirico, hence why this show is entitled A Priest and a Rabbi.
3: Dot, dot, dot. (laughs) (laughs) It's rare when you get to have two of your mentors on at the same time. So I am really looking forward to today.
2: No, you know this reminded me of, and you and I have talked about this. Steve Allen used to have that that show called The Meeting of Minds, where he right. he wrote these amazing scripts where he had oftentimes it was people from history come together and he would have they would have conversations with one another. I, I, I sort of feel like this is it, but it's but, but it's all live. It's just it's it's amazing. <laughs> we'll just and be
3: eavesdropping.
2: <laughs> that's right. That's right. This show is is literally years in the making. When we first interviewed both. Father Sirico and Rabbi Lappin, we found out that they were friends and had uh, done work together. In fact, I love this story. In fact, when when Father Sirico got on the line with us earlier today, he mentioned that, that when they were seen together in Washington one time, at, when asked who they were, Rabbi Lappin said, we are the Judeo-Christian tradition. <laughs> so... So these two two are both giants. We're going to dispense with any of the, the, the biographical information. We, we had two previous shows with each of them. This is their third appearance on The Soul of Enterprise. Welcome to Back to the Soul of Enterprise, Rabbi Daniel Lappin and Father Robert Sorico.
1: Thank you very much indeed. I'm delighted to be with you. Thank you.
2: Well, I'm going to jump right into it because one of the conversations that we have had about each of you is this thing that... Father Sirico, you wrote in your book, Defending the Free Market, where you talked about that you value the truth more than freedom. And we asked Rabbi about that, and he said, well, I'm not sure about that, but I'm sure that if Robert and I got together and talked about it, we would have a couple of laughs and come to some conclusion on it. So, I'm going to go right there and ask you, Father, could you explain what you mean by that? And then, Rabbi, I'm going to ask you to respond.
1: Well, uh, what I mean by that is that uh, the 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 end of freedom, the purpose of freedom, the to use the philosophical word, the telos of freedom, uh, is the truth. That you can have freedom and uh, have a lot of problems. You know, I mean, freedom doesn't make the good or the true possible it only allows the conditions for that to happen and that's why I, I place a higher value on that moreover you can have a free society that's not a good society um, you have to choose the good now the context needs to be there um, but um, I think the truth is the, the goal freedom isn't the goal Rabbi Lappin, have I, your do thoughts I have on that? your imprimatur on that <laughs> I'm sorry do, do I have your imprimatur? Oh, um,
4: yeah, that that freedom is that freedom is the the higher uh, the higher end. Um, no, no, no. The truth yeah. is the higher end. Yeah, I, 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 higher. Yes, I, th- I think. Now, I'm sorry, you sound so vague about that. I'm just trying to think of of some of the implications. But uh, but but in in general, uh, yes, I, I think that. Um, uh, one of the uh, pieces of ancient Jewish wisdom that uh, I was taught by my father when I was when I was very young um, was that uh, truth itself is subservient to a higher end, and what that, that? Uh, we even find in the Book of Genesis that uh, uh, when the angels came to tell Abraham and Sarah that they were going to have a child, in spite of the fact that Sarah was beyond menopause, and they were two very old people, uh, it, um, the, the, the Bible reports that Sarah, listening from behind the door, laughed to herself, saying, my husband is beyond it. And God then says to Adam, excuse me, to Abraham, uh, Abraham, why is your wife Sarah laughing, saying she is too old to have a child? Well, that's not actually what happened. She was laughing, uh, saying to herself, my husband has lost his virility, he's not potent anymore. Now, that would be a heartbreaking thing for any man to hear his wife laughing about. It would be impossible. And so God actually distorts, as it were, he, do, he doesn't report accurately. In other words, there's a higher value over accurate reporting of, of events as they happened. And and there there are many other examples of that as well, where where one uh, makes the truth subservient. So the idea that uh, that freedom is uh, is higher than that, I, I, yeah, uh, I'm I'm
1: with you on that. Uh, Lord Acton once said that um, the the political end uh, of society is freedom. That that's the point of political society. And what I was trying to do by emphasizing the truth is to underscore the fact that there's something more to the end, the purpose of the human, of human life, and that is the truth. And of course, when I'm speaking of the truth here, I'm doing with uh, capital T, uh, the wholeness, the fullness of truth, i.e. God himself, rather than a uh, detail of um, etiquette. Uh, and the, I guess uh, the, the, the the reason I was sounding
4: hesitant on, on freedom is I just wanted to uh, make sure, and I know that Father Sirico means this, we're talking about freedom, not license. Uh, right. The idea is, is not freedom from natural law and God's rules, but freedom from the tyranny of other people. And Which is uh, no the surest freedom. way to obtain that is through economic freedom, letting individuals retain the ability to determine how to dispose of their labor and their benefits and their assets.
5: Right.
2: We, we had a guest on, uh, Peter Block. I don't know if either one of you are aware of his work. He's a, m- my mentor in the area of consulting and has done a, his, one of his great works. is called Freedom and Accountability at Work. And he said this during the show, and I want to get your reaction to it. Uh, he said, liberty is the absence of oppression. Freedom is the act of commitment, a choice to have an intention to create a certain kind of world. Thoughts on that? And I'll go, go to uh, Rabbi Lapton first.
4: Um, could you just repeat that one more
2: time, that the difference sure. is? what? He said, liberty is the absence of oppression. Freedom is the act, is the act of commitment, a choice to have an intention to create a certain kind of world. Mm-hmm.
4: Yeah, uh, a, a distinction between um, liberty and freedom. Uh, yeah, look, I I, I think uh, yes, I mean, uh, I think what everybody is is trying to get at is the same thing. I mean, everybody is in one way or another reacting to. Uh, the tyrannies that arose in the 19th and 20th centuries, the collectivist economies that not only snuffed out millions and millions of lives, but embittered the lives of those who actually survived. So uh, however we, we, we decide to phrase it, the, the ultimate, in my view, the ultimate chasm that cuts through like a canyon of our culture uh, is over the question of, of whether um, people should have economic freedom or or they shouldn't and the the left's view ultimately is that people should not have economic freedom and the carrot dangled before them to extract their freedom from them uh, is security and so uh, we're, we're we're grappling with you know how how do we change that Approach because I think we all feel that our society is sliding inexorably back in that direction in terms of the culture.
1: Yes, very true. Father, your thoughts? Well, you know, as you read that, uh, you know, you can you can use the word freedom and liberty in various ways, and I think that's that's innocent enough as long as you're defining. Uh, and mm-hmm. if you want to make a distinction, I think largely that quote is a distinction for poetic purposes. But uh, it was Lord Acton, uh, and he probably uh, plagiarized it from somebody because then John Paul II plagiarized it, plagiarized it from Lord Acton. <laughs> but it's something to the effect that freedom consists not in the right to do what we like, but in the right to do what we ought. That, uh, that the ought, and this goes mm-hmm. back to the question of truth, that freedom is a, is a vacuum. And it needs to be filled by something, and it can be filled by vice or by virtue. And uh, this is why when people prize freedom above everything else, it usually turns into tyranny. Because if it's not, it doesn't have a moral orientation, uh, it begins to fall apart. And it's not really freedom, because to deny the truth uh, of who you are is to be bound more severely, um, than by anything else, Rabbi. Any other f- further thoughts
4: on that? You know, I I just sort of take it back to uh, to to the real world we inhabit, and uh, you know, I get terrified. Well, if it's an overused phrase, I, I guess. I, I get deeply disturbed um, by a uh, a an economics professor at. The, the biggest state university system, the New York State University at Binghamton, and uh, not Binghamton, at Stony Bridge in New York. There's a woman called Stephanie Kelton. She's a professor of economics and public policy. She was the chief economist uh, for the Democrats on uh, the uh, United States Senate Budget Committee. An important woman. And her, uh, her most recent tweet is, no one makes a billion dollars. You take a billion dollars and she speaks then about Bill Gates and the Koch brothers and uh, and Jeff Bezos and so on. No, you don't make money. You take money. Now, that's what she's teaching a whole generation of students that are growing up there. That's pretty serious stuff because what we're doing is eliminating both truth and freedom. Truth immediately, freedom um, Inevitably, because this precipitates uh, the slippery slide down the slope of self-destruction, how can a society function with a free economy when people are told that anyone who has money has it as a result of taking it, not making it?
2: Wow, that is is absolutely tragic. Unfortunately, we we are up to a break because we have to make some money by playing some commercials. And I will let Ron pick up on that that. That is a great topic and lead in for some of the things that I know Ron wants to talk about. But right now, a word from our sponsor.
5: E
2: We're tuned into The Soul of Enterprise with Ron Baker and Ed Klass. To find out more about our show, visit us on the web at thesoulofenterprise.com. You can also chat with us on Twitter using hashtag AskTSOE.
0: Now, back to The Soul of Enterprise.
3: Well, welcome back, everyone. We're here with two of my mentors, Father Robert Sirico, the founder of the Acton Institute, and America's rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Lappin, and also my rabbi, uh, uh, Dan with, uh, even though I'm not Jewish, but I wanted to ask you Rabbi Lappin something that, uh, that you brought up on a, on your recent podcast or within the last couple of weeks on your podcast, you laid out a principle and I hope I got this right. You said the Bible is the source of morality, but the Bible's morality applies to individuals, not to nations. Can you explain what you mean? And then I'm, I'm dying to get Father Sirico's reaction to that.
4: Yeah, sure. Um, a, uh, an individual is not allowed to uh, take anyone's life other than in self-defense. Um, a state, a government, can. It's called the death penalty. Um, a, an individual can't take something from another, uh, from another individual. But if, uh, if a, a nation goes to war and acquires lands through going to war, then that is part of what happens in war. And it was really only for the very first time in 1967 when the, the party that was thrust into war was Israel. And for the first time in, as far as I know, military history, the opinion <laughs> the opinion of the world afterwards was, well, now we need to have some meetings to figure out uh, how you give back the land you conquered. <laughs> Hello? Try telling that to Europe after 500 years of wars. It doesn't work like that. and right. um, And so... It, it becomes really dangerous when people are distracted from the issues of personal behaviour uh, towards issues of national behaviour. Uh, it's it's an unhealthy distraction because what what we need to be focused on is uh, is is how we behave, and what's important is in human behaviour is behavior more so than motivation or, uh, or, or, uh, or thought process. In other words, I care much more that somebody treats me nicely than I care about that in his heart he loves rabbis. I really don't care if he has enormous moral qualms about rabbis, but he's the greatest friend anybody could ever want. Uh, it's, we care about how people act, not so much about what how people think, and that's the basis of individual morality. None of this applies to uh, to um, interaction between nations, which un- fundamentally depends on power, not on paper. Depends on power, not on books about morality. And, th- and this is why I've said the United Nations isn't. Um, it's it's just a bad joke that uh, people who have enormous financial vested interests in it maintain in the hope that one day it can become a world taxing authority. But, uh, or, or the International Court of the Hague, again a complete joke, and I, I cited uh, Stalin's famous quote when told that uh, the Pope won't approve of his behavior towards Russian Catholics, and he laughed derisively and he said, well how many army divisions does the Pope have? The implication <laughs> being none, and therefore Fought. I don't have to listen to what he says. That is the reality of geopolitics. Which, if we ignore, we do so at our peril.
3: And, and Rabbi, just to clarify, I've heard you say other times about the hierarchy of, of you know morality, and, and that nations are there to take care of their citizens and put their citizens first. And is, is is that kind of the the thought between taking land or food or resources from as long as it's a just war that nations would be allowed to do that?
4: Uh, yeah, I mean, it's, it, this is—it's obviously painful in it, and it offends the sensibilities of um, decent liberal 21st-century human beings. But uh, but yes, uh, and um, and and this has been the way the world has always worked. And the notion that somehow, if we all sit down in in one big grand meeting. We'll be able to right all kinds of wrongs. If we could only sit down and explain it to him, we'd get the Pope to understand that abortion and, uh, and um, homosexual marriage are, are right and proper and good and ideal, and we'd be able to make sure that all nations cease their, uh, their warlike activities, because all of it stems from nothing but misunderstanding, because after all, all human beings are decent and good and seek only the best.
3: And Father, what is your take on that? Well, the rabbi said a lot there, so it's, it's kind of complex. <laughs> uh, I, 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 I do, that's the occupational
1: hazard. I would have a, a little more maybe perhaps of a metaphysical take on it to say that um, really in a sense nations can be just or unjust. That is, they can treat people Uh, as they deserve to be treated or not. Uh, And that confines the legitimate action of nations. So they can't just, uh, if they engage in a war that is unjust and and take property as a result of that, uh, then there is a question of restitution and all that. But morality is is a, a more personal thing in that it doesn't apply to groups of people, much less to nations, as much as that it applies to um to the individual to the conscience of a person uh now persons are always related to other persons but the the in in uh, a lot of Catholic debates uh, over these kinds of questions, people will talk about the structures of sin and social sin. But there's no social sin uh, detached from the the personal conscience of a person. So I think it the when we make these things too abstract, when we um, you know kind of recede and, and push the individual to the periphery, uh, that's where you really have tyranny. That's where you really have bloody regimes for the for the for the good of the people. I'm, I'm thinking here of. Um, Mao uh, and, and how you know, he could justify a literal bloodbath of millions of people in the name of the common good because it was so abstract that nobody took responsibility for, for what they were doing. And right. uh, I think we, we need to be reminded of that if we're going to have moral people creating a moral society. Wasn't it, isn't it a moral society if You don't have moral s-
3: people, right? Wasn't it Alexander Solzhenitsyn that said that good and evil run through the heart of every person, something to that effect? Sure. Um, well, that's excellent. Th- thank you, Rabbi. That, that that's a very thought provoking. When you came out and said that, that was very thought provoking. But like you say, your job is not to you know. Coat your uh, listeners in warm butter. You're you're giving them the way the the world works. <laughs> it's <laughs> Which, always a bit uh,
4: awkward when you find yourself
3: quoted back to yourself. <laughs> <laughs> we you were we were talking right before the last um, break about the, the the professor of economics from New York University who wrote about uh, you know that if you're a billionaire you you you've taken it and. It kind of leads me to two questions that both of you have addressed this in in your writings and your work. Why do we tend to confuse poverty with virtue or piety automatically? What what makes what makes people think automatically that just because you're poor, you're virtuous? And and Father, I guess I'll start with you. Well,
1: I see this all the time, and I think it's a confusion because there is a certain. Um, admiration that is owed to the person who is detached from material things in the sense that they are not commandeered by materialism. And what happens is we easily translate that into poverty being the virtue. I I don't think it's a particular virtue if it's not a chosen thing. I mean, in, in my religious tradition, there are people who live having taken vows of poverty, but the virtue of it is that they've made this decision voluntarily. Uh, involuntary poverty is, does not enrich a person. We, we, the temptation to demonize the rich and canonize the poor uh, becomes the foundation uh, upon which uh, horrendous social programs are enacted. And I think we need to resist this as being superficial. Uh, St. Augustine, uh, in commenting on one of the parables of Jesus, said that uh, the rich man was not in hell because he was rich, but because he was proud. And the poor man, Lazarus, was not in heaven because he was poor, but because he was humble. And I think we need to think more deeply about these things. And uh, the anaweem of the Old Testament and, and uh, of the Hebrew Scriptures, Rabbi Lappin can elaborate on this, I'm sure, are, are not those with a certain um, uh, lack in their financial accounts, but those who see their utter and full dependency upon God himself.
3: Mm. And Rabbi, what do you say about why we confuse poverty with virtue?
1: Uh, Well, I I like very much
4: what Father Sirico said, particularly his turn of phrase, canonizing the poets. It's beautiful. Um, Look, I I think what's going on here is essentially uh, an aspect of the, the huge cultural struggle. That is tearing apart our society. And it's essentially um, a struggle that that flows from the opening verse of Genesis. In the beginning, God created heaven and earth. Now, could have just said in the beginning God created everything. Could have saved a few words that way. And um, by saying heaven and earth... Uh, what, what we're gathering in ancient Jewish wisdom is that we are being told right at the outset that God created two parallel realities, a physical reality, Earth standing for the physical, tangible reality, and uh, Heaven for the uh, the ephemeral, spiritual part of reality. And essentially the, the message of that opening verse of Genesis is, in the beginning God created Heaven and Earth, you've got to know that you live in a world of both a physical and a spiritual reality, and ignoring either one, thinking that, only one of those is applicable to you is the, uh, is, is the road to sure destruction. It's the it's road of wasting your life. And so if you look at uh, a world as since the 1960s, America has been moving more and more and more towards a popular cultural perception of only a physical reality, uh, then there's several things that flow inevitably from that. One of them is that, of course, we are not divine creatures touched by the finger of God with abilities to create like the Lord creates. But no, we are nothing but sophisticated animals. We're just another point on the entire spectrum that starts with amoebas and runs through chimpanzees and orangutans and horses and runs up all the way to human beings. And and that's all we are. Well, the consequence of that is that money then obviously also becomes a physical thing, not a spiritual thing, which is false, because we as as people who have a a sense of reality know that money is is funny. You can't really put your finger on it. You know, is it uh, discs of metal or strips of colored paper? Or did I write a check? It's money or the orientation of iron oxide molecules on the back of your credit card? Like, what is money? The answer is, it is a spiritual measure of human relationships. But if money is not what I just said, money is nothing but material, well, then it's a thing. And if I have any object, a thing, and it's on the table in front of me, and when I next look around, it's not on the table in front of me, but it's right there in Ron's hands, well, I know he took it from me because... (laughs) things, material things, cannot be in two places at the same time. But spiritual things can, like tunes, or sure. joy, or happiness, or, in fact, money. So the materialist, or the leftist, or the socialist, or the uh, secular radical, uh, sees the, uh, the, the, the customer handing $20 to the storekeeper and walking out with a new pair of shoes. As far as he's concerned, the storekeeper has just oppressed the customer by taking his money that's right taking it he didn't make it he took it and therefore by definition the person who has least of that is the person who hasn't done any taking and therefore not having money is good it's virtuous hence poverty is in
3: fact a virtue right right now that's a beautiful explanation rabbi and and you're the one that taught me if if it wasn't for the bible we wouldn't even have the word so unfortunately we're up against our break and folks we'd like to remind you please check out the soul of enterprise.com we will post full show notes with our interview with father robert sirico and rabbi daniel Lappin, and links to where you can find them and more about their work and now we want to hear from our sponsor sage
5: the future of online tv is here E.
2: And we are back with Father Robert Sirico and Rabbi Daniel Lapin. And um, I want to, th- this is going to be our ecumenical section, I suppose. And I wanted to ask you, Father, what is your favorite story or one of your favorites? You don't have to get it to one specific one. Favorite part or story, concept from the Old Testament?
1: Well, I, I suppose um, it's the 50th Psalm. But the backdrop of the 50th psalm is the story. So the 50th psalm is one of uh, one of the psalms of uh, penance. Uh, it's David's prayer uh, of, you know, don't reject me, God, don't remove your spirit from me. But the backdrop of it is, this is David's repentance after having taken Bathsheba and sent her... Husband off to the front of the battle to be killed um, because he had in, mm. impregnated her and the 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 whole way in which uh, Samuel uh, confronts David with this uh, he tells him it in the form of a metaphor of this this man who took this little lamb from somebody else, and he was very rich, and he killed the lamb and ate it and served his guests. What do you think of that? And David says, uh, he should be put to death, how dare him? And the prophet says, you are that man. And then it provokes this psalm, uh, this beautiful psalm. So I, I would say I like that, probably because I have prayed that psalm many times, feeling like, like David, you know, where where sometimes we are tempted to or actually betray our highest values, our highest ideals, and to know that we have a God to whom we can come who is willing to embrace us with his forgiveness. And thank you, Father. And Rabbi, what's your
2: favorite story, part, concept from the this thing called the New Testament?
4: Mm-hmm. Um, that's uh, uh, that's an impossible question for me. I actually don't know the New Testament at all. At all? Um, okay. I'm, 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 I hate to confess such ignorance, but, but it's true. I'm sorry. I really only know the Old Testament. <laughs> Now I know Fair that enough, it's Jews, the only right?
2: part I know <laughs> well then sorry, then i'll just i'll no. just that's all right I'll just ask you so what so what what is your, do you have a particular favorite psalm or a concept that uh, that
4: maybe isn't often talked about from the old testament then um let me go with, with let me go with concept um the the best example i can think of is uh you know you speak to a bridge engineer who's being charged with uh, building a, a a great big bridge across a river or across a valley or whatever it is and one might say to him well you know which is your favorite part of physics um, is it gravitational theory? Is it material strength theory? Is it wind uh, force theory? And he has to say at the end of the day, you know, I'm sorry, they're an unbreakable hole. I need mm. all of those things to successfully design a durable bridge. And so I would say, again, from uh, from my point of view, the, the Torah, the whole Old Testament, is is indivisible um the and and maybe the best way i can I can sort of explain this is, is by means of an example where uh, we just you know to sort of grab something um the uh Adam and Eve are put in the garden of Eden to to work the garden back at the beginning of Genesis, and then uh, we find in Exodus chapter twenty the ten commandments six days shall thou work' Okay, so there we've got two cases of work. And then uh, we've got a story where uh, Moses is going to go to Pharaoh and say, Let's, uh, let God's people go so that they may worship him in the desert. And then at the end of the book of Joshua, Joshua says, you know what, you guys can do what you like, chapter 15. You guys can do what you like. Uh, I, For me and my family, I'm going to worship the Lord. And so here we got across the span of the Tanakh, across the span of the Old Testament, from Genesis to Joshua, uh, we got two words that are work, Garden of Eden and Sabbath, six days you shall do all your work, and two words that are worship. You know, you've got to uh, worship, uh, worship the Lord, or me and my family will worship the Lord. The fascinating thing is that in Hebrew those are all the same word. From, from which ancient Jewish wisdom derives the fundamental truth, which is that uh, doing your daily work, earning your living, is one way of serving the Lord. One way to worship the Lord is by doing your job, which is a huge advantage and one that has certainly contributed to the disproportionate success that Jews have always enjoyed with money. To know that For me, God isn't what I do on Saturdays in the synagogue. It's what I do all day at the office as well. That's that's a huge thing. And that can only be uh, derived and understood from treating the Old Testament as one indivisible whole.
2: Outstanding, thanks. Um, question to you both, and we've got about five minutes left in this segment, so I'll give you roughly you know two and a half minutes each. It's it seems to me that I, in my study and research that we humans are are said to be a, a tribal species, which is probably helpful in a lot of different ways that that, that helped us survive and and grow and, and flourish. But it seems nowadays that tribalism has gotten completely. Out of hand and is running amok, and you know places, especially in, in in the United States, where we, we have uh, people running to to, to f- f- quick judgment every time they see an image, you know, similar to what happened last week at the March for Life. And I'm wondering if you wouldn't address this notion of of you know be, being tribal is okay, but tribalism really seems to be a problem. Father, your thoughts on that? Well, I,
1: I suppose I mean. It's, it's the tribe without the relationship, you know. Mm-hmm. It's the tribe without a, um, you know, a personal knowledge of people. So we're just, uh, you know, it really goes back to something we discussed in an early segment, this uh, abstraction, this notion that we'll just kind of do this thing in the aggregate, aggregate of the collective. And so all I need to do is see this tag or this um, image and you know, either rejected or accepted. Um, So I think this is where the family comes in is a very important thing. It's not that we are against collectives, uh, but but you can't run an entire nation the way you can run a family, where where somebody isn't contributing is still supported. You know, uh, you, you have to have families in order for that to happen. And when you erode the family... Either ideologically or economically, you destroy the fabric of society. So I I would look at tribe, if you want to use that term, tribe, um, as beneficial when people know each other. Fair enough.
4: Rabbi Levin? Um, Yeah, I I think it's it's very much a part of of what I alluded to earlier, which is that when you view the world exclusively through a materialistic lens, uh, the result of that is that uh, people are just sophisticated animals. Well, uh, what distinguishes us from one another, uh, for the most part, is our spiritual reality. Uh, Physically, um, for the most part, we're um, interchangeable. Um, you know, Father Sirico is obviously much better looking than I am, but that's not his main asset. His main asset is when he speaks and shares the contemplations of his soul. And, and so it is what distinguishes us as human beings from one another is the spiritual. When you strip that out of cultural perception, what you're left with is the physical. And I do believe in my mind, and I have no evidence for this, uh, in my mind, the growing popularity of tattoos is again a part of this desperate desire to seek individuality in a culture that has commoditized human beings. And we see that in how uh, tribal identity is of paramount importance. And it's, it's done because it's in the same way that we treat animals that way. If you're a rancher, sheep, good animal, wolf, bad animal. Uh, it's it's simple. That's how we do it. When you reduce the world to only earth and no heaven, uh, the result is that um, the only way to identify it is the part, is the group to which we belong. Nobody says, "Oh, you know, I want to buy exactly that cow." No, I want I'm a farmer. I want to buy. A, I want to buy a female cow of approximately this age and and we're done, I don't care about its personality or its soul or its identity. Uh, I just care whether it's part of the group of cows. Well, this is what we've done to people as well. I, it seems to me that that's a uh, one explanation, at least, of what's been going on.
2: Yeah, the the big danger for me is is when, and I saw this a lot in my conversations with people on on Facebook this week, the other group then allows says, well, we get to define what your symbols mean. You know, I'm like, well, wait a minute. Yes. <laughs> how, do, what, how does that work? That I get to define what your symbols mean? That,
4: that's not right. Well, because the, the farmer does have authority over his animals, or the zookeeper over the animals in his zoo. If we're all animals, then government is the zookeeper or the farmer. And, yes, it does have authority over our very bodies.
3: Wow. Well, Thanks, you guys. Thanks, Rabbi. Thank you, Father. Sirico, go ahead. What's on store for next week? Free Rider Friday, Ron. 167 hours.
2: has been the soul of enterprise business in the knowledge economy sponsored by sage energizing business builders around the world through the imagination of our people the power of technology join us next week on friday at 4 p.m eastern 1 p.m pacific in the meantime please do visit us at www.thesoulofenterprise.com